Well, thank you very much, uh, Pastor John, for the privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. And uh, I'm so glad that I could once again meet Pastor Laurie. It's been a great privilege to hear about him and, and also know him. I also want to thank the brother who has uh, given up his turn to me to preach. So actually, I'm, I'm a substitute preacher. It seems a, a man was called in suddenly one day to substitute for the, the preacher. So he went to this rural congregation in order to tell them that he had come and that he was a substitute preacher. Suddenly realize, realizing that he was in a, a, a rural congregation, he wanted to explain what a substitute was. He said, suppose a glass pane was broken and then you put a wooden pane instead. That wooden pane, he said, would be a substitute. So the service was over, everyone was going home. The dear old lady came and shook the pastor's hand and said, Pastor, you are not a substitute pain, you are a real pain. <laughs> I hope I'll be a, a real pain this morning. Over 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah declared, I saw the Lord. My eyes have seen the King. You know, that vision of God transformed his life and changed his entire ministry. Would to God that every one of us here this morning would have a vision of God. So if you have a Bible, and I trust you have brought your Bible uh, to church this morning, or some device to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah and chapter 6. Shall we bow together for a moment of prayer? Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. You are the Lord of the universe and you've come to be with us this morning. And so, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me and each one in this room. That we would hear you in clear terms. And we would go away challenged because you have spoken. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you can hear me. Yeah, yeah. Now from the way that Isaiah 6 is placed, some commentators think that the prophet Isaiah had already been in ministry for some years. He had already prophesied during the reign of King Uzziah. If you turn to Second Chronicles and chapter 26, we read there that King Uzziah began to reign at the age of 16 and he ruled Judah for, for 52 long years. And for most part, he was a good and a righteous king because Second Chronicles chapter 26 verse 5 says, He sought God, and God 
gave him success. And then 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16 says, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. He was a great man. A great man who had a, a brilliant beginning, but a ghastly end. You know, that tells me that good beginnings are never a guarantee for a great end. And this is the reason, it's given again in verse 16. After he became powerful, he became proud. And he was unfaithful to God. He has a great career. A great career that's marred by pride. And you know, in the Bible, pride is the source of all evil. They say that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone else sick except the one who has it. But humility, on the other hand, is the source of all virtue. Here's the danger. The moment you think that you have humility, you've lost it. Remember Peter? He was so proud, so arrogant, so boastful. He said to Jesus, if there's anyone who's to die, it's going to be me, it's not you, Jesus. But you know, many years later, this is what he wrote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now I thought... What a contradiction that is to the spirit of this age. This age where we are being told that you must exalt yourself, you must lift yourself up, you must place yourself on a, on a pedestal. But God opposes the proud. God actually works to bring us to the end of ourselves. And to shatter every illusion concerning our self sufficiency. So here in the case of Uzziah, Uzziah's self-reliance moved to his self-exaltation and his self-exaltation moved to his self-destruction. And you know, pride comes to all of us. None of us here this morning are exempt from pride. It comes in very subtle ways. I heard a story of a a young preacher who had graduated from seminary. You know, he had reached the place where he knew more than he could ever know again. And he was invited to preach in a large church one day. And when it came time for the sermon, he mounted the steps up to the pulpit. And then with a, an air of self-assurance and self-confidence, he wanted to start off his sermon with a bang. But then when he opened his Bible, his thoughts eluded him. His mind went blank. And you know, it happens to preachers many times. He stammered and stuttered. He fumbled as his notes fell to the ground. Nothing went right for him that day. And after saying a few words, 
he came down the steps, so downcast, tears in his eyes. He went into the vestry and sat there for a moment. And then the older senior pastor came to encourage him and said to him, Son, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you had gone up. You see, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Uzziah looked at all his accomplishments, his power, his wealth, his, his fame, his name. And pride filled his heart. Pride began to dictate terms. He began to sing his favorite song, How Great I Am. So you'd say that Uzziah was one of those who survived the perils of adversity and yet succumbed to the more subtle wiles of prosperity. Now that's not all. If you still read in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, we read, He entered into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Here he was taking things into his own hands. He decided to do something that only the priests were to do. And so there, as he stood before the priests, his heart filled with so much of anger, there he met his tragic end. Verse 19 says, leprosy broke out on his forehead. You know, this great king, this great man, Uzziah, could have left behind a great legacy, but the only legacy that he left behind was his leprosy. Imagine this, the epitaph on his tombstone read, Here lies a leper. Because scripture records that King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. And that, by the way, is the context for Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now the year that King Uzziah died was 740 BC. And we could say that King Uzziah was Isaiah's hero. Isaiah must have looked up to this great man with a great legacy. He had expanded the country, done so much good for the country. Could be that Uzziah had mesmerized the prophet Isaiah, so much so that Isaiah's eyes were fixed on Uzziah and not so much on the Lord. You know, sometimes people can keep us from seeing the Lord. They become obstacles in the lives of others. And if I may ask this question this morning, particularly to some of the young people here, is there someone who has become an obstacle in your life? Is there someone who has become an obstacle in you seeing who the Lord is? 
So you see, it's only when King Uzziah died that the heavens were opened and Isaiah saw the glory of, of God. That could be the greatest need for some of us here this morning to have a glimpse of the glory and the holiness of God. Because you know, it's when our dreams fall apart, when all hope fades, Sometimes when our heroes die and all is filled with gloom and despair, it could be it's in that moment that we are ready for a glimpse of heaven. That's how it was for those frightened disciples, you remember. They were all behind those bolted and barred doors. Their dreams were shattered. Their hero was dead. They thought that all was lost. And then Jesus stood in their midst and he said, Shalom, peace be with you. Now in that vision that Isaiah had, we read in verse 1 that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. You know, very rarely does scripture break through the limitations of human vision to give us such a glimpse of heaven and the glory of God, to man especially. But here Isaiah did see God enthroned. That was a symbol of his sovereignty. Though Judah's throne was empty, God was still on the throne. And you know, there's never a time when God's throne is vacant. Do you believe that? There's never a time when God's throne is vacant. When you lost everything, your whole world crumbles and falls. There's no one you can turn to. You're in a desperate situation. Maybe having COVID. Brother and sister, will you remember that God is still on the throne? You remember the heyday of communism and Marxism. Many Christians who gave up hope, they said, this is a hopeless situation. One day communism and Marxism will come and take over the world. And then what happened? The Berlin Wall came crashing down. Nikita Khrushchev was displaced. Chairman Mao, who said, to the Christians in China, we'll bury you, and now lies dead and he's buried. So Chinese pastor, he said, the church in, in China is twice as strong as ever now. And what's more, he said, there's not a hypocrite in the church today. God is still on the throne. You know, if I was in another church, uh, the church people would say, Hallelujah. God is still on the throne, and don't forget this. And I say this because in many parts of the world today, the church is a discouraged lot. Everything is, seems to be gloom and, and despair. In my own country, where there is persecution on the church, there is a decision maybe to wipe out the Christian church. 
people in India are crying out, you know, we are just a minority, we are just uh, maybe 2 or 3 percent of a 1.4 billion population, we've overtaken China. We're so glad about this. <laughs> In many parts of the world, the church is on the back foot. There's corruption. There's compromise. There's immorality in high places. In many parts of the world, the church has a name that it's alive, but actually it's dead. But you know, in spite of all of this, God has not abdicated. God is still on the throne. And so Isaiah's vision is one of the majesty and the holiness of God. You look at this in verse 2 to 4. Above him were the seraphim. You know, the seraphim are a a species of angels. And these seraphim were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And notice that song. It's a repetition of just one word, holy. You and I know that uh, the present-day church is averse to the word holy. Unfortunately, holiness is a sadly neglected priority in the present-day church. It seems that the, the church has shifted its emphasis not to holiness, but to happiness. That's why in many a church you could find the slogan, keep them happy. Sing to them, pamper them, feed them. And then there's even a great misunderstanding concerning the word sanctification. Something that to be sanctified means where someone is dipped in in an embalming fluid and they come up mummified. But you see, biblical holiness is godliness. It's Christ-likeness. So notice the seraphim sang, holy, holy, holy. You know, that's a literary device that the prophet is using here to describe God's holiness. And the reason is because there is no superlative degree in the Hebrew. And so for the only time in the Old Testament, an attribute of God is elevated to the superlative degree. And it's also being triple underlined here to show us that this is of the utmost importance, the holiness of God. And what a great and exhilarating moment this must have been for the prophet. You have a vision of God's throne, God seated on his throne to hear the song of heaven. And so when Isaiah is given a glimpse of the holiness of God in his glory, it's then that he begins to see who he is. He becomes conscious of his own uncleanness. That he had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know, this is significant, that you and I, we don't see ourselves honestly and truthfully for who we are until we are confronted with the holiness of God. 
You and I can never understand sin only in the light of understanding the holiness of God. Which means when you and I become casual about sin, we become unconcerned about holiness. Remember Peter again. When he was confronted with the holiness of God, he fell on his face and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O God. Here the prophet Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. You know, that's what the lepers cried out. Unclean. Unclean. But in the prophetic oracles, the prophets use the word war always to denounce sin in others. Turn the page and look at Isaiah chapter 5, for example. There are six times the prophet uses the word war to denounce sin in Israel. But here, overwhelmed by the holiness of God, and looking at his own sin for the first time, he cries out, War is me. He is broken by the sense of his own sin and his own depravity. Why? Because this sin had contaminated his speech, his gift to speak. Here's a prophet, a speaker with unclean lips. And not only that, Isaiah realizes that this disease of unclean lips is not his alone. It's become a national epidemic. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. Imagine this. But hardly was confession made that cleansing is offered. This is what I read in verse 6 and verse 7. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. How wonderful to see the forgiveness of God even in the Old Testament. This is the great comforting word of the New Testament too. The gospel tells us that your sins are forgiven. Go in peace and sin no more. So Isaiah realized that if he was to speak for God, he must be cleansed by God. Because God cannot use an unclean vessel. You remember that's what Paul said to this young Pastor in Ephesus, Timothy. The vessel must be clean, my son. So God cannot use anyone without first bringing them to an awareness of their sin and their failure and the need for cleansing. So if I may speak lovingly, gently to anyone here this morning. Maybe you've been involved in Christian ministry for some time. But right now, today, you have been put out of action. Why? Because of sin. But here's the gracious word of God. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll put us back into action. 
So your area of failure, my dear brother or sister, can become your effective area for ministry. It's not your disqualification. But note the progression here. You know, in verse 1, the prophet's eyes were opened. He said, I saw the Lord. In verse 7, his lips were cleansed. This has touched your lips. Now in verse 8, his ears were unstopped. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. See, once the heart and lips were cleansed, God could now speak. The prophet could now hear which means as long as there's sin in our hearts, the sin becomes a barrier for God to speak to us. That's why for many people, the Bible is a closed book. They never heard God speak. So observe this scene. Suddenly, the seraphs are silenced. The prophet too is silenced. And then for the first time in the text, God speaks. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And it's interesting, the prophet Isaiah is not named here. Nor is he compelled or coerced. Just a simple invitation to go. And don't ask me how, but this invitation is coming to a man who is already engaged in ministry, which means it is possible to go without being called. It's possible to go without being sent. You know, some people have assumed to hear, to have heard God's voice. Sometimes it's been dad's voice. A dad saying, son, I think you failed three times in your plus two, uh, 12th standard. I think God is calling you to ministry. I know that some of the pastors who come into ministry who have been miserable misfits because they have never heard God's call. And it's true that many have heard God's call to go, uh, but they have stayed, you know, like Moses. He began to give so many excuses. Lord, it's not me. Send my brother Aaron. You heard theologians speak of, of the church in two categories. They've spoken of the church militant. That is the, the church that is the body of Christ now here on earth. And they've spoken of the church that is triumphant. You know, the, all those saints who have gone to be with the Lord. If you've been in a traditional church, you heard it said in the Apostles' Creed, the quick and the dead. Sunday school student was asked, what do you understand by the quick and the dead? The young boy said, the quick are those who are alive, the dead are those who are not so quick. <laughs> the church militant and the church triumphant. But I want to suggest to you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, today there's a third category in the church, and that is the church reluctant. The church that is unwilling to go. So often the, the response to the call of God, you must go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize and teach and disciple. 
The call of God comes to go. And so often we say, here am I, Lord, send her. Or maybe that's why the, the most famous hymn in the church today is, take my wife and let me be. But you know, if your life and my life has been touched by the fire of God, there will be a divine compulsion to go. So all through 2022, as the church here in this place in Bethel, the house of God, how many times have we heard the word go? Oh, that's Pastor John's work. He's the pastor. Maybe Brother So-and-so, he's the evangelist. I'm just a church member. And you know, the, in the church worldwide, there are many, many people who come to the church, they warm the pews and they go away, disregarding this command to go into all the world and preach the good news. Tell the people, the lost and the dying, a Savior has come. The true consecration and transformation will motivate us and move us to get up and to go into mission. So could it be like Isaiah, you and I need a transforming touch? You know, according to the Bible, transformation is a metamorphosis. And that word means there's there's to be an inward change of heart resulting in an outward transformation of our character, our conduct, and our behavior. You know, a lot of what is going on in, in the church today is not transformation, it is reformation. You know, reformation is, is you try to save yourself by doing good and being good. Reformation is taking the old life, winding it up on the 31st of December and saying to the old life, I hope with all these New Year resolutions, you'll live a good life. Have we been failures? Well, because we've never had the transforming touch of God upon our life. So transformation is so different. It's not about turning over a new leaf, my brothers and sisters. It's about receiving a new life, the life of Jesus Christ, into our hearts and lives. And of course, justification is the prelude to transformation. Justification of entering into a right relationship with God leads to transformation. Anything else will be a pretense on a, or an outward show. So I must conclude. The moment the prophet heard God's call, his willing response was, Here am I, Lord, send me. Or oh, that that would come from every heart this morning. Every heart that's got its ears open to listen to the call of God. Here am I, Lord, send me. Notice, he did not say, here I am, Lord. 
you know, that would be just an indication of his geographical location. Lord, I'm here. But he said, here am I, Lord. You don't have to look any further. I am the volunteer. I am willing to go. So are you and I willing this morning to surrender? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Or oh, that you and I would have this vision of God, to have a glimpse of God this morning. To receive his cleansing, cleansing touch so that he could set us back into action. Places where you and I are today, so that we could be mouthpieces, instruments in the hand of God, touching lives, turning lives, so that uh, in 2023, next time this year, this place will be filled with people whom you have brought into the kingdom of God. What a challenge, isn't it, for Christians? To be touched by the fire of God. To be cleansed by him and then commissioned to serve. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we commit ourselves to him. Gracious God, we bow before you with fear and trembling, recognizing you're still on the throne. And one day we will be accountable. When we stand before you, we will give an account, the Bible says, of all that we have done in the flesh. But today is the day. Today is the day when we still have life. Today is the day when we can go out from this place saying, I've committed my life to Christ. I've received his commissioning touch. For the fire of God has fallen upon me. Amen. He has cleansed me. And he has now sent me into a world of lost and dying people. Some of them are there in my own home. So gracious master, touch these your children this day. Enable them by your power and by your spirit that they will be anointed to obey your command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. This world will hear the good news of Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.